Hey, everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Top Hill Recording. Hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 32. Neil, this is our season finale, buddy. Big season finale, man. Yep, end of season two. We'll be kicking off season three. We got a great guest for a season finale, Stephen Allen Davis. Stephen Allen, welcome. Well, howdy, boys. How are y'all today? Doing we're good, great, man. man. We're super, so super excited to have you. That's Yeah. Just, can't wait. Yep, we're pumped. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, man. It's really fun. I appreciate you doing it, man. Thank you. So Stephen, we've got a uh, decanter here that's new. I uh, why is that? Why you got a new decanter there? Today was my last day of work. I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh. Yeah. So I've been retired for about an hour and a half. Congratulations oh, on your retirement. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Are and you my, drunk uh, yet? <laughs> getting ready. <laughs> my coworkers. My coworkers uh, got me a bourbon decanter. I was telling oh, Neil. I was telling Neil, Stephen, I don't know what it says about me. 100% of my retirement gifts were bourbon related. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's saying something or not. You know, it, that definitely has a ring to it, though. It has a ring to it, though. I, I, I told him, I said, look, man, they just listen to the podcast and know that we need bourbon. I, it's not because you drink too much. <laughs> 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 well, uh, I, I know all about that. So, uh, you know, who doesn't? You know. So, so Neil, we're having Old Forester 1910. Oh, this is the stuff that's supposedly amazing. Cheers. Cheers, man. Cheers, Stephen. Cheers, Stephen. Cheers, dudes. Cheers. Swallow it down, oh. boys. Yep. Oh. Very good. <laughs> it better be. It's uh, that's in a decanter. <laughs> man. That is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the hell with the bottle stuff. You want a decanter now. Yeah. Yeah. The bottle is like that's kind of that's kind of not 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 high enough, man. Yeah. Well, my big question, Stephen, is is if I uh, if I put Evan Williams in it, will it taste better? Probably just because it's coming from a fancier. Just, It'll look pretty. Well, I mean, I'd put one in one glass and one in the other, and then just take both of them and stick them in my mouth at the same time and kill them. <laughs> then I think you'd I think you'd figure it right out quickly. Plus, your throat would probably explode. so steven like we said we're thrilled to have you here and man you are uh probably an expert in every area of the music industry uh but for podcast number one with you i'm thinking we'll talk about songwriting oh yeah i know you've got quite a rich history there but before we even get into that we usually start off and like to ask you the same Kind of tell us a little bit about how you got into music or, or where music, where you first realized music was going to be an important part of your life. And this can be all the way back when you were a kid and you were uh, yeah. saw Elvis on TV or whatever it was right. that just stood out. Yeah, well, that, that all plays in there and, and right up right up through the 60s and everything else. But, uh, uh, you know, my, my father was a real good singer, so he listened to a lot of Frank Sinatra and stuff like that. So it was on the house and I heard music uh, and I got interested in the ukulele 
when I was about eight. And uh, he bought one and I would play around on it, you know, and that pretty much stayed that way. I, I messed around with the ukulele and I could sing a little bit. But uh, like so many guys my age in that, that time period, uh, it was the night the Beatles were on Sullivan. I mean, when I, when I saw that, you know, my head came off and uh, I just couldn't believe what was going on. You know, it excited me and I totally understood it immediately. I I never really thought of a band before, but these guys were so cool that I just immediately like, uh, I got to do that. I, <laughs> I, I think I can do that. So this is the funny thing. Of course, McCartney was my guy. I immediately thought I liked him the best, you know. So I went outside that when, when the show was over and got a broom. Okay. And I tied a piece of rope on the top of it and the bottom of it and hung it over my shoulder. So it looked just like a Hofner bass to me, <laughs> but it was, but it was a broom. And so I went, I, I'd go in the bathroom and comb what little hair I had down as far as I could get it to go. And I would just stand in the bathroom and look at me with this bass on. I, to me, it was a bass, but it was actually a broom. So, uh, then, then I just listened to everything that they had. Uh, my uncle was Harold Bradley. Everybody knows, you know, about him in the Nashville thing. And uh, he brought all the records home of the Beatles. And that's where I really got to listen to him. They lived across the street from us in Hendersonville. Oh, okay. So from there, Harold gave me a little guitar. You know, I started playing and trying to learn stuff. And then he gave me a bass and that was easier. And it went from there. And then I would say when I was about 14, I started writing songs and it just came real naturally to do it. I could sit down because I played piano. You know, I had lessons when I was a kid and I, I understood melody and I understood somehow how you made it all come together. So I was able to write songs easily, hmm. you know, right, right off the bat. So that just kept, you know, getting more. And then I got in a couple of bands when I was in high school and I actually worked up some songs that uh, I wrote and the band did. And we did them on stage live and they were real, they were as beatly as I could get it, you know, um, <laughs> but, but no one seemed to like walk off when we played them. They didn't know what they were, but they didn't, they didn't know it, it wasn't the normal stuff we were playing. So then Harold took us into Bradley's barn. Uh, we had four songs worked up and we went into Bradley's barn. I guess it was probably ni- 1964, 1965. Okay. And uh, it was, it was four of us and we were on live mics and the drummer sang and, I sang and the two guitar players sang and I played bass and we cut four tracks, you know, live, everything, harmonies and everything at one time. And, and it it came out, it came out really good. Yeah. It came out really, really good. And, you know, we didn't have any idea what we were doing, but it it sounded pretty good, but you know, nothing really, nothing really came from that. I just loved playing guitar and then bass, bass guitar became big. I knew that just playing in a combo in Hendersonville, there was nothing. And I wanted to somehow get into music business. So at some point when I was about 15, up in Hendersonville, Monument Records had their office up there. That's where Fred Foster was. Hmm. And uh, so Harold was good friends with Fred Foster. So I just bugged Harold, said, I want to go in and play for him. I didn't even know what that meant, you know. But I knew that I was supposed to take a guitar and go play on my song. So I pretty much forced him to do that. <laughs> and, uh, he did it and I went down and, uh, he listened and there were a whole bunch of people in the room and they listened and everybody liked it. And I, I did okay, I guess, but you know, nothing ever came out of that. Fast forward a couple of years later, I got out of high school in 67, I think I keep messing that up. I think it was 67. And the boys that I'd done that little 
combo record with, they were playing down in Printer's Alley at a place called the Action A Go-Go. And okay. it was like a 60s psychedelic, you know, girls in the cages dancing, t- kind of a Nashville, <laughs> but, but a Nashville version of it. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, a Nashville yeah. version of it. You know, the, the girls weren't exactly hot, but, you know, they were doing the best they could. So, uh, so we always went to Florida, you know, like, I don't know, April, May or something like that for two weeks. And so that year I said, I'm not going to go. And that was the first year I never wanted to go. And so it, it caused a lot of problems. They didn't want me to stay there by myself, but my aunt lived across the street. So they thought maybe through that part, I started talking to my guys and they said, well, look, man, when they're gone, you got to come down here. We can get you in. I said, to printer's alley. They went, yeah. I said, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. They left. And I guess the same night, you know, I drove into Nashville, which was a long way because you can only go through Gallatin road, you know, from Hendersonville to Gallatin road to the, to printer's alley was a really long drive. I had never driven into Nashville, so it was like totally freaky. And um, <laughs> so I got down there. They let me sit in. We played some songs, and it was great. I went every night, and about the end of the two weeks, they offered me a job as playing bass in a band. Oh, sweet. And, um, and I was all into it. So when my parents got home, I told them that I was going to start playing bass in this band at a club. And they were so where is it? I said, it's in Printer's Alley. And my mother said, you're not playing in Printer's Alley, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I'm like, oh, mom, please, blah, blah, blah. So. <laughs> and how was, old were you? You know, I just turned 17. Okay. You know, just got out of high school that, that year. That It was the summer, the summer of high school. Somehow I talked them into it. I went down and started playing and had to work up like 60 songs in three days, you know, totally impossible. And uh, <laughs> but But we went down there and I did it. And I don't know, a couple of weeks into the gigs, they came down to see what it was like. You know, and they came into the club. And I mean, it was okay. It wasn't rowdy or anything. It was kind of an upscale kind of a dump. Yeah, it was an upscale <laughs> dump. <laughs> you know, and uh, and they had the the funny thing was the the cages with the girls in them. They had little scant outfits on, and they were dancing. It was just like looking over at them was just like. Oh wow, I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you're thinking I'm you're thinking I made it and mom mama walks in and goes, oh, I don't Yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but did you get no, did it, you get the thumbs up after the parents showed up? Yeah, they knew they couldn't stop me. I just yeah. I wouldn't let them do it. I mean, so that was great. And so that summer that summer we played there for a while and then we got a house gig up in Indianapolis and we we uh, went on our first world tour, sort of to speak, <laughs> and and there were six of us staying in one hotel room. That was not cool, but we were playing a place called the Chicken Shack, and it was a biker bar, and it was a dump, and you could get killed, no doubt. You could definitely get killed in there. So then, then this is when things start happening. Where if they hadn't happened, I don't know what would have happened. And uh, my mother promised me that if she let me go that summer, that I would come back in the fall and go to college. So, of course, I said yes. And, you know, when it came time, she just said, well, you're going to have to come back. And I don't know. For some reason, I, I was kind of burned out on that. So I came back and uh, Harold stepped in and got me got me in Peabody to do music up there. So I, I came back to town and, uh, you know, started going to college. Now, that summer, one night after one of those gigs down in the alley, I got home and this band was like a white James Brown band, like doom, 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 doom. It was like it was that kind of a band. It was all R and B. There was no 
no Beatles stuff or any stuff like that. It was real hardcore R and B, you know, which I was, I loved R and B, but, uh, it just got driven into my head. And, uh, so one night I got home about two thirty three in the morning and I had my little duo Sonic and I was sitting in the bedroom and I just, I just wrote this song. I mean, it came all, it, the whole thing fell out like just like everything, you know? Now at that point I'd probably written 10 or 12 songs, but this song, it was like a professional that had written it. I mean, it was, it was that good. I didn't know that, but you know, when you wrote it, did you feel that? No, okay. no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I wouldn't have known what a hit was if you hit me with it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I just knew that it was, there was something about this one that had more than the other ones. And it was a story song. You know, I always, I love story songs till this day. So, mm-hmm. Being at that time, there were no recorders. I had no recorder. I didn't have a cassette player. There weren't any. There weren't any kind of recorder at all. So I couldn't put it down, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had it in my head for like three months. You know, I'd play it every now oh, and wow. then just to make sure I remember it, you know. And and I think back of that. I mean, now if I say a line and it's not getting recorded, I'm probably going to forget it, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I I kept it in. Uh, you know, and then again, I went to Harold and I said, how do you get in the music business? And he said, the best thing is to see a publisher. So he set me up with probably the, the greatest guy I could have seen that day uh, was Noro Wilson. Do you guys know Noro? I do not. I'm not familiar. Yeah, he's one of the biggest ever in Nashville. And anybody in the music business is. Uh, so he's somebody we should know. Yeah, you really should. Because he was like the mayor of Music City. He'd been around for a long time. He ran Al Gallico Music, and he produced lots of records on, um, well, let's see, like Charlie McLean and, uh, I, I don't know, I can't even go, go into it, but lots of records, and he was a big songwriter. You know, he wrote The Grand Tour and uh, The Most Beautiful Girl and a whole bunch of other things. So I never had a meeting with a grown-up in my life except maybe the coach, you know, so I didn't even really know what you did at a meeting. Just didn't have any <laughs> idea. So anyway... I got my old crummy guitar and, and drove into town and found Music Row somehow. Are you still 17 here? Yeah. yeah. Man. I was just getting ready to turn 18. It was uh, late in the summer, I think, or maybe the end of the summer or early fall, something like that. But I'd come back off the road and it had gotten in Peabody or something. And uh, so I walked in and, and I had the four songs that I cut with a little combo I, ha- I still had a tape of those, so he played those and listened to them. And uh, it was a little, really little office, like maybe 12 by 12. It was just teeny, you know. And I was sitting on the other side of him. So he played the four songs, and, you know, he's, oh, that's good. I, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. I'm like, oh, well, good. And I didn't know what – I didn't really know what that meant, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 this, this was like a – this was a crossroads for me, and you just don't have any earthly idea how something would happen like this. But like I said, I never was shy, but I also was very respectful. And, you know, I didn't like to do something I knew that wasn't the right, right thing to do. But for some reason, I just said, well, man, I got this one other song, but I don't have it on tape. Can I play it for you? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, can I? I actually, I didn't have my guitar. I said, can I use your guitar? He said, yeah. So he gives me the guitar. I um, mean, I'm like, I'm about to blow up. I'm so scared, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so I lay the lyric sheet out on the desk. I was smart enough to do that, you know, 
the, the lyric sheet was like 12 by 16, two of them. <laughs> These big, huge pieces of paper. <laughs> and uh look, look more like an opera. But uh, so I just closed my eyes, man. And, uh, and I played the song like I played it a hundred times before. And it was quite long at that point. And again, I kept my eyes closed the whole time other than looking at the lyric. And, and when I got finished, I looked at him, looked up at him. And he was just looking at me kind of with his mouth open. And he said, did you write that? I said, yeah. He said, did you write it by yourself? I went, yeah. He said, that's a smash. And I, I <laughs> oh, swear, wow. I said, I said, oh, okay. Is that good? And he said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's real good. I said, oh, okay. Okay. So in the office that day, he called Al Gallico, who was the publisher. He was a really huge independent publisher in the United States, but also all over Europe and everything else. Been in business a long time. And so he called him up and because he was just started working for Al Gallico. So he called him up and said, this kid just walked in off the street. and He's got a hit song. And so he says, I want you to play this for Mr. Gallico. So he stuck the phone in my face <laughs> oh, and wow. I, re I replayed the whole thing again, the whole six minute song again. And uh, I'll never forget it. We, when I got through, he picked the phone back up and he said, uh, this is Naro talking to Gallagher. He said, yeah, 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 I know. I told you. I told you. It's a hit song. It's a hit song. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there like, what just happened? So he says, Mr. Gallico wants to talk to you. So I'm like, oh, okay. So he hands me the phone. And I had never spoken to an Italian that I know of. There was no Italians where I lived. But here's this guy from New York and he talks like this, you know. And he says, uh, he said, kid. I love that song. I'm going to get you a big record on that. I don't want you to play it for anybody. I want you to go in the studio and demo it with Naro. And then I'm going to sign you to a publishing deal when I get there. I'm like, wow. okie dokie. Sure thing. You know, <laughs> had, had no idea what any of that meant. And, uh, oh, you know, and I goodness. got off the phone and, and uh, we went, I don't know when we did it, but I actually have the original demo that I'll have to get wow. you guys. Please. That I recorded with, uh, it was the first full session I'd ever done with other players other than that little combo. So the. Oh, that would be awesome to put that in the podcast right here. That would yeah. be awesome. I agree. I think it would too, man. I do. Hell yeah. Yeah. Take time to know her 
Please don't rush into this thing Well, I didn't listen to mom I went straight to the church I just couldn't wait to have a little girl of mine home When I got on work The preacher was there So was my future bride He looked at us both And then he called me to his side He said, son, take time to know her It's not an overnight plane You better take time to know her Please don't rush into this thing Well, it looked like everything Was gonna turn out all right Then I came home a little early one night There she was kissing on another man So I took her life with my own hand Here I sit in my jail cell today So we cut the song, and then Al Gallico, he told us what he's going to do. He, he took it to Jerry Wexler. He said, I'm taking it straight to Wexler for Percy Sledge. It's a hit for him. And again, I'm like, okay. And, um, you know, a couple weeks later, they called me and said, you got the next Percy Sledge single. And I'm like, okay, what? Percy Sledge already huge then? 17 years old. So. He had just cut When a Man Loves a Woman. I was following that up. So, <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Just, so he was as big he as he was ever going Ever going to be, right. Yeah. So, but I go, I go back to that part of how did I know to stop everything and ask Naro to play that song? Because I was very scared, but at the same time, I didn't know any limits. So let's just say that I had not done it that day and I waited a week or four months or something. I just caught him at the right time. It was perfect, you know, and mm-hmm. I truly believe that if I'd have played it for anybody else in Nashville, that'd have been Buddy Killen or Bob Beckham or any of the other big publishers at that time. I don't think they would have got it. You know, I don't think they would have mm-hmm. like, Oh, that's really good. Naro knew and he made it happen. And then he gave it to Gallico and then Gallico got it to Wexler and to Percy. And, uh, and then, you know, right on into uh, Atlantic records and it came out and, this is a weird part. You know how the music business works this day. You write a song, somebody likes it, they put it on hold and they record it in about a year. And then about two and a half years later, it comes out. That's crazy. It takes forever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was five weeks after they told me they were going to get me a cut. It was on the radio. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It was on the radio. For that time. Yeah. That's insane. So like short term, how drastically did your life change at that point? I didn't really know what I'd just done. I just kind of thought, well, of course. You know, I mean, I was that much of a smart ass. I just was like, <laughs> yeah, of course. 
you know, <laughs> and uh, but but I was also playing with the top the top band in town, which was Eliminate Charade. They were the like the top local band in town, and we were just it. I mean, we were kind of rock stars in Nashville, so all that was going on, you know, when uh, when the Percy record came out. But when I went in to hear the Percy record, which you'll hear the demo and you'll see the difference in it. I, I didn't know that they changed it. You know, I thought it would sound just like me for some reason. And <laughs> they all, they also took a verse out that they said would made it too long. And I didn't know that. So they sit me down and said, we want you to hear your record. So I'm sitting there and here I am again. They set, they play the song and I'm listening. I'm like, Oh my God, what's that? Oh, what is it? Oh my gosh. What's that? You know? So, it, it ends, and it's kind of silent for a second. I looked around, and I, and I said, he screwed it all up. <laughs> I said, he didn't do it right. He didn't do it right. You got to call him back in. At, yeah. And I, I mean, again, the, the naivety and, and just not knowing I was pure. You know, I didn't know. and uh, yeah. But I always kind of said what I thought. So anyway, that uh, – that got that going and from there it took off and I got uh, Gallico got me signed with RCA like within 90 days and I had an album deal and a, and a singles deal with RCA. So before the first of the year in 1968, I had a publishing deal, a hit single, a record deal. And I was also playing with uh, the top band in town. And then I got married and had a baby all in, all in that time period. Oh, wow. So nothing really was going on, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord, man! I mean, yeah, how, I mean, how'd all you the, keep your sanity? Oh, I didn't. So to, I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't. Man. You know, I don't I mean, think anybody at eighteen, nineteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen could. I mean, that's just a yeah. you're stacked. Your odds, the odds are stacked against you at that point to like not implode on some level. With all that right, going right. on. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I mean, also, man, I was, you know, I wanted to, I was a hippie. I mean, I thought I was, and I wanted to do what hippies did and we know what hippies do. You know, I was doing all that too. And it just all came at one big time and it just seemed like it was perfect. Uh, but looking back at it, I think of all the things that happened in, in a six month period. And you're like, man, everything was lining up. Either you like it or you don't. But I mean, it all lined up in a really, really weird way. Those were major changes in my life right then. So, and they, and I'm still covered by those. I mean, I'm still, they're still a part of me, those changes. Getting, I went from a kid working at a filling station or a bar to having a publishing deal and having a hit song and, and having a record deal all, you know, in several months. So, again, I, and I say this with deep humility, but I was just like, well, of course. You know, <laughs> I knew that I was that good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's the only way I know yeah. to say it. And uh, mm-hmm. take the time to know her. How far up the charts did that go? It went to number four. Okay. You know, it was it was a big R and B hit too, and uh, that was pop. And then people started covering it. Two or three country artists covered, and then in Europe they started covering it. So you know, it was getting maybe ten or fifteen different records on the song around the world. Of course, the Percy song was the, was the biggest one. David Allen Cole had a pretty big cover, didn't he? Yeah, he did, but that was much later on. He didn't cover that till I guess late seventies, early eighties, or something oh, wow. like that. Okay. But he he did a great version of it. he did a great great version of it. Uh, you know, and it was weird because all the guys in Muscle Shows, like Fritz and and all the guys who were writing down in Muscle Shows, they couldn't believe this seventeen year old white kid wrote 
take time in Norco. It's like as black as you can get. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you got to have age and you got to be black to write that song. And they found out that this white kid, 17-year-old white kid, wrote this thing. Well, they were just like that. that just, they started calling me. They wanted to come up and write with me. And I said, well, what for? And they said, well, to co-write. And I said, what, what do you mean co-write? He was like, well, we get together and write a song together. And I said, well, uh, I, I don't think I want to do that. I like writing by myself, or I guess. I don't know. What do you mean? I didn't understand what they meant. You <laughs> yeah. know? Donnie Fritz, man, he just caught, he followed me around one whole summer just wanting to write, and I never would write with him because I didn't understand what the hell he was trying to say. I didn't know what we were supposed to do. The beauty of dumbness. I can understand the co-writing. I still yeah. have trouble writing lyrically with other people. It's just it, it always was more natural to do it yourself. Well, it, it's because the co-write is this: you have to you have to strip yourself pretty naked in front of the other person, and most people have a hard time doing that or even knowing how to do it. Mm. You either sort of have that or you don't. Now, I know writers that are real laid back and shy or whatever, and they write that way. You know, I write the other way; I write out front. You know, but everybody has a, a way they do it, and you know, most of the guys are knocking it out now. They're real, real aggressive, and uh, you know, they go after it because it's so daggum much fun. You know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Coming off of that, where where do we go from here? What's the next? Uh... I think the, the the next thing we should talk about would be the first check I ever got. Ooh, from yeah. Hey, yeah, there we go. I was going to Peabody, sorta. I wasn't really, but I'd <laughs> I'd drive out there in the morning, but I didn't I didn't stay. <laughs> so, uh, so one afternoon, I don't know. I'm getting ready to come home. I called home, and my dad answered the phone, and I said, "Hey, Dad, I'm on the way home." And he's like, "Okay." He said, "Hey, you got a you got a letter today?" And I said, "From who?" You know, I never got a letter. He said, "It's from some place called B M and I or something." <laughs> I said, "B B M and I." He said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, what is it?" Well, he said, "It's a little paper, and it's got, and uh, says a bunch of things on it. Then there's a check in it." I said, "A check?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "You mean like money?" He said, "Yeah." <laughs> I said, well, how much is it for? And he said, $8,321.81, something like that. What year is this? 68? This is 1968. 1968. I said, is it mine? He says, yeah. He said, it's it's made out to me because you're under 21. You can't get a check from BMI. He says, but it's for you. And I said, well, what's it for? He said, I don't have any idea. I'm like, Oh my, I said, how much? And he told me again, I was like, oh, that can't be, that can't be. So <laughs> I got home and he handed me a check and I looked at big old check. My dad had checks, but they were these little old bitty things. This thing came out of a big register or something. It was about four inches wide and about eight inches long. It was a huge check. <laughs> so I'm looking at it and it says, Chemical Bank, New York City, pay to the order of Costo Davis, blah, 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 Steve Davis. And there it was, $8,000. So, you know, back in 68, it was a real deal to make a, a long distance call. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had to kind of work it out with my dad. I said, I need to call Mr. Gallico and find out what this is. He said, oh, okay, well, yeah, go ahead and call him. So I, I called him and he, in New York. That's where his offices were. So I was talking to him and I said, hey, Mr. Gallico, I got I got a letter today from this place called BMI and it's a big check in it. And he started laughing. He said, really? I said, yeah. I said, I don't understand. I mean, what, what, what's this for? He said, that's for the times they played it on the radio. I said, played what? And he said, the song. So I said, you mean they pay you when it plays on the radio? And I, he went, then he really laughed. And he said, yeah, of course they do. And I said, so this is my my money? He said, it's your money, kid. 
He loved that. Uh, oh, I, did. Did. I, that I, was, I bet. Did he yeah, tell you? Yeah. Did he say, "Hey, uh, you might want to get ready for some more checks"? <laughs> Don't, it's like no, be no. The only one. no, I thought that was the only one you get, and that was the end of it. I really, really did. And they got they they got bigger from there. But uh, but I, you know, I was talking to my dad, and uh, you know, after that, and we were just kind of laughing and just totally like, I mean, we were a medium income, you know, but back then, medium income wasn't very much. It was pretty low. You know, to get a check for $8,000 was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I was like, wow, how did that imagine. happen? And yeah. So my mother used to work at Harry Sadler Chevrolet, which was down on the corner of Two Mile Pike and Gallatin Road. It was a huge Chevy dealer down there. And she used to work there. And we'd go down and pick her up. And as soon as I'd get out, I'd run in there and look at the Corvettes. And I'd I'd get in them. I'd look in them. I'd, you know, and they'd be watching me. And I just wanted to see them, smell them. I wanted everything <laughs> about them because I thought they were the coolest car. So uh, I told my dad, I said, uh, well, I said, you know, you know what I want to do? And he said, well, I think I do. And I said, I want to go buy a Corvette. He said, okay. I said, uh, yeah, I want to go tomorrow and buy one. And he's like, well, okay. <laughs> so uh, they just couldn't stop me. <laughs> we drove down the next day, and I've been going in and out of there for years because my mother worked there. So all the old guys that worked the place, they never paid any attention to me. So I went in and got in the Corvette that was on the floor. It was a 1968 brand new Stingray convertible. Ooh. Yeah, burnt orange with the big wheels and everything else. Oh. So I'm in it looking at it and all this kind of stuff, like kind of messing with the gears and stuff. And so this young guy walks up and he says, how you doing? And I'm like, good, man. I get out and he says, uh, some kind of car or something like that. I said, yeah, man, it's the greatest car there is. And he said, well, what are you looking to do? And I said, I want to buy this one. And he said, yeah, me too, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I said, no, nah, I really want to buy it. And he said, you mean purchase the car? I went, yeah. He said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, I'll just give you a check. And he's like, are, are you sure? So my dad came over and we started talking and my mother came over. And so I wrote him out a check. Or I don't know if it was my checking account or my dad, but we wrote him a check and I drove it home, man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I bet, bet you'd love I to mean, still have that car. <laughs> no kidding. Yes, I would. Yes, I, I've, I've got plenty of, I've got a, a garage full of old cars I wished I'd have kept because uh, I had a tendency to go for the, you know, the, the nicer ones. And uh, I mean, that was the dream of every kid I drew up. If you could get a Corvette somehow, your life changed. They look at you different. And this was when Shoney's, Shoney's drive-in down in Madison was where everybody went. And the whole deal was to go down there and drive your car around a circle, you know, and you would do that all night long. You'd, <laughs> you'd drive out and go down about two miles, come back and do it again. And you just wanted everybody to see you. Yeah. So I drove down there in this thing I called the turd wagon. It was an old Chevy uh, a station wagon, a Biscayne, no air conditioning, no, no power steering. And I'd taken the hubcaps off of them and painted, painted the wheel black because I thought that made it look cool. So... <laughs> When I drove in, when I drove in in that Corvette, I mean, everybody, who is that? And like, what? What are you doing? They and uh, thought you, you stole know, that so car. That was fun. I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, you know, again, I mean, how many times has that happened to a kid? So it was like every teenager had that dream, you know, yeah. and to be able to buy it yourself. I mean, I paid for it. You know, wasn't like my parents bought it. That's like so. a that's a that's a fairy tale story, man. It's, yeah. Steven, do you yeah. do you remember which song went to number one first? Your first number one? Uh let me think. Well, <laughs> I was actually I was actually not real 
uh, end of songwriting for other people. Uh, what I was doing is writing for myself. So okay. I got to deal with RCA and they wanted to turn me into Glenn Campbell. That's what they wanted me to write all Glenn Campbell type songs. So I wrote a slew of those mm. and they had my hair cut. They took me to someplace called England's barbershop or something. <laughs> They're supposed to cut your sideburns like Elvis. It was awful. They took me in there and <laughs> got my hair all cut. And then they, then they took me and had pictures of me. I thought you just look like an idiot, man. <laughs> But we tried that, and then somehow I cut another rock, little rock band, and a guy, the head of RCA in San Francisco, heard the tape. Uh, he'd signed the uh, uh, Grateful Dead, and he'd also signed the Airplane, and he loved the song and songs and tape, and came to Nashville and signed me and put me. And I did a, I'm gonna did what I'm, I'm gonna call the first literally album, FM album, rock album in Nashville, because I was writing those kind of songs. I could write those kind of songs. Now. There's been other people think, well, what about Tony Joe White? Or what about uh, this guy or this guy? I said, yeah, but it's country influence. It's not, my stuff was like Santana or Blood, Sweat and Tears or Hendrix or something like that. It was like real FM rock stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never said that to anyone, but I mean, I, I have the proof of it. And I don't believe anyone was able to do that or was doing it before I did. And that would have gone a long time because the songwriters weren't able to write those kind of songs. They were almost all of them were totally country influenced. Uh, and the ones that weren't couldn't write a really good song. They were writing, you know, this one guy came up to me, uh, Gary, uh, Gary, I can't remember his name. He big songwriter. He came, I was doing a writer's night and, uh, I was getting ready to do the last song. He said, are you getting ready to do take time and know? And I went, yeah. And he said, I want to come over and see this. So he made a guy move out of the way. He said, I want to see how a 17-year-old guy wrote this song. He said, and in 17, I was writing songs about spaceships and junk. He said, I want to, I just can't imagine you wrote this song when you're 17. So, and me either, you know, uh, it's still probably, it's, it's probably the best song I ever wrote, even though I wrote songs that are better. But, you know, I mean, look what it did. Change, it, it definitely set, set your life into motion, man. It definitely changed yeah, everything. So yeah, so from, from then, like I said, I went to London and lived. I cut at Abbey Road in the, wow. in the front room with the, with the yeah. Gallico sent me to London for six months, and I I got hooked up with Philip McDonald, who did all. He was one of the the engineers on the later Beatles stuff, and he did with Emmerich. He was Emmerich's assistant, and they worked all the time. That's crazy. So I I got to work in the front room. That's where they did not that big room with the big staircase and everything. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody thought the Beatles. They worked in the front room where their windows were. So we went up there and started doing an album about halfway through it that Phil called me one day and said, look, I got a, I got a bit of a problem. I was like, what? He said, I'm going to leave EMI, Abbey Road. I said, really? Because he was co-producing it with me. I said, well, what are you going to do? And he says, well, that's the thing. He said, I'm going to Apple. Mm-hmm. I said, Apple on Savile Row? He says, yeah, we just just built a studio and he wants me to run it. I'm like, well, can I go? <laughs> he said, of course. So finish, finish the album. <laughs> At Apple Records. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and actually used Ringo's original trap set on two tracks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know this sounds like I'm, I've got to be making this up, but no. No, I, we, we, we verified, man. No, we called a couple know. people, made sure that you were uh, uh, telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. so, so now I'm about 24 at that point. Wow. Good Lord, man. That's and, amazing. Uh, and but I wasn't writing any songs for other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I when I got back home, I I continued with this crazy rock music kind of a thing of 
Frank Zappa meets John Lennon, if you can imagine that. Wow. That's the kind of junk I was doing. It was, it was, it was really, really way out there. And, um, yeah. and I still have copies of all of it, and it's fun to listen to. So what would I be would a good— love, I would love to hear some of that. What would be a good <laughs> song from that to put in this spot in the podcast? Yeah, I want to hear something from that. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'd say meat tubes. <laughs> meat, meat tubes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Love it. That, that's a real popular one. That's a real popular one. Meat tubes. Meat tubes. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Hell yes. So uh, we'll listen to meat tubes so meat right tubes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's pretty ill, guys. I tell you, it's pretty ill. But uh, you know, I just look. They, I mean, uh, when I went to London, they flew me over. You know, of course, and I went to New York, and they flew out. I flew out of New York, and I flew out at midnight. You know, there were like eight people on the whole plane. I hooked up with this beautiful girl that was on the plane, and we became friends, and all that goes with that. And when I got to London the next morning. You know, we said goodbye, and, and I went to where Gallico was over on uh, Denmark Street, where all the publishers are in London. I get in the building. Gallico says, come on, kid. I want to go somewhere. So we go outside, and we're coming around a building in Soho, and it's like it's like foggy London. I mean, it really is like that. <laughs> we come around the corner, and we bump flat straight in to Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. No way. <laughs> Bumped them. 
So Linda steps back and says, oh, excuse me. And she goes, Al. He says, is that you, Linda? And he goes, <laughs> yeah, Al. So he knows her from the Eastmans. So they start to talk. And so I'm standing there, you know, a little hungover from all the Scots the night before. But <laughs> Al Gallico is talking to Linda Eastman in Soho with all the fog. And there's this guy standing right across from me, about three feet. And it's Paul McCartney. And he's standing there. And I'm just standing there. And they're talking, how's your dad? Oh, they're doing fine. They're coming over next week. Oh, that's good. And I'm just looking at Paul like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so finally, Linda kind of stops. She says, oh, Al, I would love for you to meet my husband. This is Paul McCartney. Oh, my God. And uh, Al goes, oh, hello, kid. How you doing, kid? You're a good kid. That kind of stuff. And uh, he said, this is a kid I just brought over from Nashville. Paul, this is Steve Davis. And he's like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, all right. I got to go. I got to go. You know, so that was it. But that all happened within an hour. I got to London. So I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm on some kind of spaceship for real. And that now I'm recording at Apple Records. So I just think, well, it's just meant to be. I'm going to I'm going to be a huge rock star. And uh, and I wasn't. But (laughs) I gave it a real good shot. (laughs) I mean, what are you supposed to think? I mean, how many yeah, people that, make it there? Nobody. I, that's so from seventeen to twenty-four, you're definitely going. Nothing goes wrong. We're definitely going in the right direction. There's no no's. It's all, <laughs> all yeses. No, it's all yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. holy shit, man! What a run! You're twenty-four, and I'm going. What a run! <laughs> I just thought I could do anything I wanted to, and I actually still feel that way. You know, it never really went away. I was going to say, it's, you know, you're it's not just, wrong, man. <laughs> That's a pretty charmed life so far. I, I, you know, I've had times when I thought they were bad, but oh my Lord, uh, you know, one of my old buddies, my old sponsor said, you got a, you got really high class problems, brother. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. So it has been, it's just been, it's been charmed. And, uh, you know, I've tried to take advantage of everything that was put towards me or anything else. But when I got back, I guess around 74, I'd already gotten divorced from that first wife, and I met this really sharp chick. I like how you said that, too. That first wife. <laughs> I usually call her my, I call her my first ex-wife. <laughs> you know, so I met this really sharp girl from Knoxville, and we fell in love, and, uh, you know, we got married and, and all that, and she worked at a bank, and, you know, I would wake up about 1130 in the day, you know, and I just laid in bed all day. <laughs> so she got tired of that. And she said, look, you're going to have to go to the office or something. I said, well, do what? She said, go down there and write songs. I said, I don't know how to write that shit. She's like, well, just go down there. I'm like, okay. Just, I really loved her, you know? So I went down there and one thing led to another. And here comes Naro again. We're just drunk as you can be one afternoon about six o'clock. It's just me and him in the office. And we're talking, and I'm just like, I just don't understand how you write country. And he's, I said, it just sounds so goofy. He said, it's just like, it's, duh, 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 duh. <laughs> I said, I don't understand it, you know. It's just corny, you know. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. He said, have you ever heard George Jones? I said, who? He said, George Jones. I said, no, I never heard of George Jones. He said, you've never heard of George Jones? I went, no. He said, you never heard of White Lightning? No. He said, well, let me play you something that he just recorded of mine. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he plays the grand tour. Mm. All right. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
and it blew my head off. <laughs> I mean, it blew my head off. We must have listened to it 20 times in a row as we got drunker and drunker. <laughs> and when the line came, uh, when he said, and she left me without mercy, taking off everything. And my baby and my whatever it is, it just like, it dropped me. You know, it was a story and he sang it. I never heard anybody sing like that. Mm. You know, it was just, so I got interested. He had tears I in his voice. Studying yeah, it. he did have tears in his voice. Yeah, and it's such a phenomenal song, and the, and, and the Billy Sherrill production on it is, is so great. And uh, from then, he gave me all of Tammy's stuff, all of George's stuff. And, and I really liked their stuff because it sounded real. And I started studying it and trying to figure out, well, how do you write a song in E? I just thought every country song was in E. I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> I just thought, boom. And, and the E chord to me was the stupidest chord on the guitar. There was no stupider <laughs> chord on the guitar but the E chord. And it's still pretty stupid, but I've learned how to deal with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but from there, I, I started trying to write country, and there were a couple of writers. Uh, we were in the same offices with Screen Gems, which ended up being EMI, and there was uh, a couple of writers over there that uh, went on to do really well, and a couple of writers at Gallico. So I brought in what I could do. I'd play and sing, and I'd learned enough about the country structure that I could sort of get it in there. Uh, and then sort of bring more of a pop thing or younger thing to it. So we started writing and uh, uh, Don Goodman, who had a real nice run of success in Nashville, we wrote a song called Rings and Circles. And uh, Tanya Tucker's sister, LaCosta, was being produced by by Naro. Well, she later came out with a uh, very nice clothing line. So she ended up being okay financially. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was cool. She was, she was very nice. She did a song of, of ours called Rings and Circles. We should have got a single out of it. It was that good. But that got me really excited, man, because like, that was the first thing I'd done that really worked in a long time. Mm-hmm. So little by little, I just started falling more into the country. And then I started getting more cuts, and Naro started cutting more of my songs. And then Billy Sherrill heard one of my songs and asked me to come down to the studio. So I went down there and started hanging out with him. I started writing with him and hanging out with him and just being with him all the time. So then I got more into it and more into it. So at that point, I'd pretty much given up the idea of trying to be, you know, a pop singer or anything like that. I still messed with it, but I was having so much success with the country stuff that, you know, it's real funny. There's a notoriety that when you start having hits back in those days and still today, everybody knows who got what cut. And they know who wrote it and all that kind of stuff. So when you'd walk in a bar somewhere, you'd, the guys would see you and you knew that they knew that you knew, you know. <laughs> so it was sort of you become infamous. And, of course, you're drinking and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, you know, everybody wants to be around you. You know, you got the you got the voodoo or the juju. They want to be <laughs> around you. So it's just a good, good time. So uh, the more I got successful, the deeper I got into it and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and had you mean literally probably 300 cuts over 11 year period. That's insanity. Yeah. Just in country. I get four days sometimes, you know, that's insane. I mean, <laughs> that's absolutely. <laughs> I'm a, it, that's not being a charmed songwriter. That's being a damn good songwriter. Yes, man. I mean, yeah. to get that much stuff, well, there, there's no, uh, there's no luck that leads to 300 tracks in an 11 year period. That's just phenomenal. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. It was just a norm. And I was, I was very aggressive 
but not, not in a mean way. I, I just love doing it. And I was going to beat you. That was my deal. Mm-hmm. You, you weren't going to write it better than me. I was going to write a better song to you. And then I was going to make sure it got heard. I was able to take that and, and use that. And, uh, you know, I got a reputation around town of being a great songwriter and a real crazy guy and a fun guy and all that. So, you know, it opened up a lot of doors. Well, let me ask you a question, Stephen. How important is that second part of what you said? Not only writing the song that you think is going to be a top-notch song but getting it heard it is it has to be but how did how did you have that instinct when you were young and then how did that carry over into being like you said aggressive but not in a negative or mean way but making sure that your stuff got out there well i think it started at that first meeting i mean how many 17 year old kids were scared to death would ask a guy if they could play a song on his guitar so i mean it started right there do you think it do you think that may have been instinctual yeah, it's, it's, I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything worked at all. And why would I think the song was any good? Nobody had ever heard it. I just, I was the only one that ever heard it. So I don't know. But I just felt like I needed to play this for him. The opportunity came and and somehow I just stepped into it. So with that, I mean, I was able to promote myself and put myself in situations where I was taking advantage of uh, other situations that, you know, you sort of, you sort of got to plan your way through it. You know, all the writers are there today, man. They just didn't show up in Nashville with a guitar in their hand and somebody see them on a corner and they start, you know, pitching their songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, today it takes forever to get through all the people because, you know, back when I, when I got my deal, this is probably wrong, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to say there were probably 30 active writers on music row. 30. Wow. Okay. There just weren't any. 30, there were guys 000. that wrote songs yeah. today. Yeah, now it's 30,000. Yeah, 30,000. That's what they've said. They said it's 30,000 songs. Yeah. So uh, and the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, everybody that comes to Nashville, they come to Nashville because they're the big fish in the little pond back in Iowa, back in Canada, back in wherever. And everybody tells them how good they are. And they think you ought to go to Nashville because you can make it there. So they arrive into Nashville full of their stuff because they know they got it. Well, they run into a town that there's 10,000 other people that got just as much they have or more. And it's a, it's a scuffle, Mm. you know, you got to do anything you can, you know, to try to be heard. When I came up with it, it was easier to be heard because you could literally just walk into somebody's office and say, can you listen to the song? And usually somebody would listen. Yeah. You know, now you can't even get in a door. They got guards. You can't get a song into a publisher because they don't accept unsolicited material. Meaning if you try to send them something, they, they don't even open it. They put it in another envelope and mail it back to you because they don't want a lawsuit from you. Okay. So how do you meet somebody? You play down on Broadway, you play some club, you get out in the bars, you meet people, you talk it up, you try to get somebody to hear you and that leads you to the next step. So now, you know, and these guys are pros back then it was just a bunch of old dumb guys trying to figure out how to write songs. It just wasn't a business. It was more like, I write songs. Now, you had guys that were in business, but the songwriting community wasn't really in business. It was just a bunch of guys that sort of wrote songs and hoped they worked. You know, now a guy gets into town before he does anything, he gets a manager. You yeah. know, but you can't get in to see anybody. You can't. And yeah. it takes two or three years if you just try to do it a normal way, just to really find a get to people that, you know, that might be able to help you. 
but Nashville's always been a thing. There is no more room in Nashville. They don't need any more songwriters. They need no more guitar players. They need no more producers. They don't need any more studios. They don't need any, they don't need anybody else for anything ever again, ever. But if you want to try, we'll make a little room over here on the right and you can crowd in there and see what you can do. That's just the way the town is. But you know, you got to push your way through and, uh, you got to be assertive, man. You don't have to be funky, but you got to be willing to step out there and put your ass out on the line with it and, uh, you know, like take chances and try to knock somebody out, man. If you try to do it on a lowdown, man, the chances now are just so slim, man. You really got to yeah. be screaming louder than everybody else, you know. Then you got to have some good shit, too. You can't just, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be legit. Uh, yeah. And then that's where it all goes up and haywire because they think their shit is look really good. But when they compare it to real shit, it ain't shit at all. There you go. It actually, it is shit. <laughs> you know? And I, I, young writers will come to town just smoking and they'll go to a writer's night at the bluebird or somewhere like that. You know, they'll sit there and these four guys or girl get up there and, and they'll play a song and the guy just goes, Oh my God, that's, Oh my, what a song. And then the next guy plays a song. You're like, oh, God. Oh. Then you find out that none of those songs have ever been recorded, and none of those songs are published, and none of those songs have ever been pitched. Yeah. He doesn't have a deal. So that guy is that good, and you hear his song, and you know that that song he's got is 10 times better than anything you got, and he can't get in. He did get to the Bluebird, though. <laughs> See? So – yeah. You know, a lot of people that they, they go home after that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you once you get a, a whiff of it, it it's staggering the competition here on every oh yeah. On every every level. The musicians, the writers. This is the music capital of the world. It ain't London, it ain't New York, and it ain't LA. It's Nashville and it's only getting bigger because it's a great place and there's good people here and they got the absolute most wonderful studios and and everything else and the players and too. venues and venues that are playing all day all night man i that last time i was right. in last time i was in nashville I, uh, my wife and i came for i don't remember if it was an anniversary or something but we we said look we're not going to do the nashville normal typical scene <laughs> we're going to go to the you know comedy club and we're going to do these right. uh, you know restaurants somewhere else and we're not going to but at the very you know we got to about one o'clock and how can you stay away <laughs> we got about one o'clock in the morning said, ah, let's just go down there and have a drink so we, we i think we ended up in uh rippies and upstairs there was maybe oh, yeah. four more maybe four people in the entire building and <laughs> one of the be- one of the best guitar players I've ever seen in my life. I mean, but if I walk to the next building, it's the same thing. Yeah, I'd go upstairs. One. There'd be fifteen right. people in there, and one of the best guitar players you ever seen in your life. And you just, it is staggering, yeah. the talent in that city. And I've a hundred percent believe it is Music City, not Music City, but the music capital of the world. So Stephen, yeah, another thing yeah, bit, Neil yeah. did for that weekend is he wrote a song about that <laughs> called Nashville. No, I is. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> well, good. We all have one or one or two. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's really no way to get around it. But you know, Tom Schuyler ended that when he wrote Sixteenth Avenue. That was the end of that. Mm. The the Nashville songs that just said it all. Of course, it's inside, but that was the greatest tribute to Nashville that probably has ever been ever been done yeah mine mine is definitely not an insiders it's an outsiders and it's more of a 
I think it's probably more written about the change changing of the city and uh yeah. you know because i've i've lived in louisville my whole life it's just a couple hour drive and that's kind of the the place that is the big thing to do if you're up here and you're 20 21 22 sure. hey let's go to nashville it's a couple hours so no uh, yeah so it's basically more about that it's about just getting the hell out of town getting down to nashville and then how it's changed over that 20 or 30 year period right for right. for an right. outsider so yeah but it's just right, a stupid yeah. little fun song, man. Don't pay any attention to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but, you know, I mean, you got to go back to why you started doing it. You know, why did you ever write a song? When I asked myself why, I didn't know that anything else existed other than it was fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't even know what was fun about it. Was it fun because I could play a chord and sing against it and it sing okay? Was it fun because I then was able to construct a chorus that kind of sounded like a radio course was it that i don't know but there was no mistaken about it as soon as i wrote i never stopped and i've i've never had a job i've always been a songwriter since you know <laughs> are you still writing oh god yeah you can't not write i don't think can you <laughs> so this might not be a fair question Stephen. i don't know if this is a fair question or not but when you want to sit down and write a song, is it more like do you schedule time and sit down and it's like this is what I'm going to write or do you write when it comes to you? Kind of what's your uh, writing routine? Right. Well, I have a I have a cool thing that I don't have any responsibilities whatsoever. I don't even have a house plant, okay? So <laughs> I live by myself in the middle of the woods in a cabin and I have a studio and uh, I don't have anybody messing with me or nothing. So it's been this way for a really long time. Uh, the last 25 years, I've been able to just basically live like that. So I'm always working, you know, at any time I'll have, you know, say five things on the burner, but then maybe 10 other things that are off the burner that I'm still messing with and, uh, you know, not, not happy with it yet or something like that. So these days, you know, it, it'll just pop from nowhere like it always did. I'll just be playing the guitar. I play the guitar a lot. Uh, when I'm watching TV, when I'm laying around, uh, or if I just want to play. So there's always something going on. I'm always ready to create and the antennas are up. If something, I hear something or I think something, then my mind goes like that, 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 like it lines it out as a story. It's sort of like a picture board. When I get the melody or the line or the idea for the song, it's like, it's just like pictures line up back to back, like say 50 or a hundred and it's going that, 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 like like those cards, you know, that, 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 that. and it just sort of tells telling me the story. I follow the story and the story leads me to the song. After that, the inspiration pops in. And then at some point, you got to bring your spirit into it, your creative spirit into it. And then you got to figure out what kind of a song it is for you. Is it something that you want someone else to record or is it something real personal? I don't want anybody to hear or is it something really crazy that I just want to finish? So it's sort of like that. You know, I mean, I aimed so long. I mean, I aimed for 20 years at Axe. You know, we'd find out Tammy was cutting in three weeks. We wouldn't write anything but songs for Tammy for three weeks trying to get one. So we got good at aiming at artists, not just writing a song and hope somebody would record it. We found out when they were recording, and then we would try our best to write a song that fit that. But now I don't play like that anymore, you know, with with Nashville. And uh, so I just write literally all across the board. And it's gotten fun again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm having to get used to it being fun because it's it's always been a job. You know, it's always been a job. I'm trying to enjoy it now. And believe it or not, it's even though I enjoy it, 
it's something that I have to be aware of because immediately I'm like, who could I take this to? Who could I call? Oh yeah, I get this guy. Oh yeah, I call this guy. So you, here. you're yeah. you're finding yourself having to stop yourself from making it a job. Yeah, I know. I know I can't stop, but I don't hit it like I used to. Mm-hmm. I, I pretty much said, you know what? I've sort of had it with that. So about three years ago, I just sort of pulled back and moved out of Nashville. Got up in the woods, and uh, now I'm a little bit further up in the woods, and you know. It works good for me, but I pitched songs this week. I mean, last week to people in Nashville. So I pitched a song to Kid Rock. I mean, how can you go wrong how with cool that? How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. 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 That'd be, that would be cool. So I just think we have to put this in here for our listeners just so they know how successful of a songwriter you've been. If, and I don't know if I've got the numbers right, but so you've had well over 400 songs recorded by various artists. You've had 18 number one songs. And we're talking, we talk about artists, we're talking about, we talked about Percy Sledge and Tammy Wynette, but you've got Reba McIntyre, Charlie Rich, Barbara Mandrell, Johnny Paycheck. Joe Cocker? Joe Joe Cocker, Joe D. Messina. Yep. Uh, I mean, you've got... It's a, it's a ridiculous it's, list. It's, it's a lot of artists. It, it kind of goes on and on. And 17 BMI Awards, I think one of your songs has been played live or over the air over three million times just one song i think that was the messina song if i'm if i'm correct yeah so. that's insane well yeah i got a meat i mean i don't know any other guys from nashville that got a meatloaf cut i got a meatloaf cut you know? <laughs> and, 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 and it's and it's on the worst selling album he ever had okay it only it only sold it only 12 sold million i was gonna say how many million did it sell <laughs> yeah it only sold 12 million you know bad out of hell so so like 35 million so this was a failure for me loaf uh, <laughs> to only sell 12 you know he needs but, to get uh, his act together yeah. man slacker well you know you know, I got I got hooked up with Cocker a long time ago. He's cut nine of my songs, and I, I don't really know anybody who's had more than that. I know that Randy Newman's had a bunch, and also Lennon's had a bunch, but I don't know anybody that's had that many cuts by Cocker. He used yeah. to cut a song amount almost on every album. You Which know, is and, amazing. You know, we became, he just loved me because he said I sounded like him, and I said, well, mm. you sound like me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> He loved that. He loved that. Hilarious. Great guy. Great, great guy. If I was to ask you, like, what's some key points in songwriting? If there's songwriters out there that want to improve, what's right. the key? Is it, you know, beyond just writing a lot, how, how can you make yeah. yourself a better songwriter? Well, I, I think taking some, t- not some time, but you need to define what you want to do. Do you want to write hit songs for Garth Brooks or do you want to write songs that you record or do you want to write songs that someone else records? Where are you best at writing? Do you write country better? Do you write pop better? Whatever. And then also, what are you better at? Are you a better lyricist or a better player singer or are you a real good feel guy? You come up with a great feel, but you're not very good at lyric. You know, that has a lot to do with it. The three-way writing things those are kind of weird. I was talking one day to a guy and I was making fun of him. I said, so it takes three of you guys. And he said, well, no, he said, we got it kind of worked out. I never heard anybody say this. He said, we got a guy that's like pretty much an idea guy. He just comes up with great ideas and he can't finish them and he doesn't do anything with them. So (laughs) he, he brings it in to the other two guys and he tells his idea to the guy that plays the guitar and sort of sings and has the feel. Okay. 
So he starts messing with it. And then the third guy is more the lyric guy. And then they all three sit in a room and mess around. And it's, well, they've had like 50 number one records or something. I, I, you know, <laughs> peach pickers. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> that's their deal. That's their deal. But they figured out what to do. They don't have two lyricists in there that are really good and one guitar player. You know, why have two lyricists that would be fighting each other? You get a great lyricist. You get a guy that comes up with ideas. You get a guy that can play and sing the hell out of the song. Everybody's got a part then. It depends, again, like if you want to be commercial and you want to be a big-time songwriter, you know, you want to have your songs cut by the top country artists, then you got to start mimicking what they're doing. What I, what I mean by that is if you're playing songs that no one would cut anyway, then you're not really looking who you're wanting to write for. Something I tell young young people that are writing and they, they want to be hit songwriters. They don't care about any of the rest of it. They want to write hit songs for people right now. I said, well, then you got to be current. And the only way I know to do that and be able to do it within three hours, and this is a really good tip that I, I tell a lot of people, if you want to find out what's going on this moment and you want to find out sonically what's going on with the records and you want to find out what the music looks like, like, how are they dressed and how are they acting and what kind of hair do they have? And do they have tattoos, blah, blah, blah. You go to CMT videos and you pull up the top 20 and you listen to every, every one of the twenties that will put you up to the moment of what is hot in town. You can just listen to how the, how the songs are constructed. Don't listen, like listen, listen and like suck it up. You know how the songs constructed, what are they singing about? Girls? Are they hurt? How many girls songs are there? Are there more guy songs? What are the guys singing about? Are they up tempo? Are they ballads? Are they weird? Are they not weird? You have to sort of study it because if you think you're going to sit in a room somewhere and come up with something and knock somebody out, that's chances of that are just about nil. You sort of got to try to plan where you want to go. If you want to be a pop top hit songwriter, you got to shoot for something. And that right there, there's no way to go to those bars on Lower Broadway or any other writer's nights and see what's going on right now. Because every one of those acts that are on those 20, they got over a million bucks in them, at least a million, just to get them at 20 for all the tour support and the videos and stuff. So they've gone, they're telling you, this is what we do. It's an absolute picture book of what is going on right now. So if that kind of stuff, you don't like that, then no. But the girls that want to be the next big thing, they need to see what's going on because they're not going to take somebody that doesn't sound like everybody else, really. It only comes along very rarely that somebody can come in from the outside and absolutely blow the place off. And Taylor Swift is the last one that did it. I mean, she blew the mm -hmm. town completely up, even more so than Garth Brooks because he wow. was doing country. But Taylor came in doing Taylor and nobody could think a 15-year-old girl could have a hit song on, on radio. I mean, her stuff is so good. You know, So I, good. I don't, the first three albums before she went nutty, you know, they're masterpieces. <laughs> they they're really masterpieces. Are. They're the best, I mean, well-written, most well-rounded. Oh. It's amazing. I tell you what, when uh, the first album came out, I, one day I'd ride down the road, and this song comes on, and I'm listening, and I'm kind of liking it. It sounds really open and good, and I like the voice. It's a young girl. And all of a sudden, the title comes around, and it's, if you like Tim McGraw. Yeah. And I went, what? So I listened to it, and then a couple of days later, it comes on, and I'm hitting the dial. I want to hear it. 
And I realized that on that chorus, without his name being on it, is Till McGraw singing the harmony. I could hear his voice. And I went, oh, "Oh my gosh, how did they do that? So that's how smart they were. They got Till McGraw to sing the backup on that dadgum song. (laughs) They knew what they had, man. They knew what they had with that one. From there, it was to me, it was a Beatle album. I mean, when she did the second album, I mean, I couldn't wait to get it. It was like a Beatle album because every song was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And then the third album, every song was phenomenal. Then she went to 89, and that's when, to me, it went up in smoke, and, you know, she'll never be able to go back. But she changed. She was a 20-year-old girl, and yeah. and she couldn't write those kind of songs anymore. I was, I was, I was pretty happy. My daughter was... Uh you know, a little bit younger than Taylor Swift. So when Taylor Swift came out, she was all about her. So I got those first three albums played on rotation for, for quite a while. So, and so I became a, you know, a student of Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, me too, man. Uh, when I worked out, I had Taylor Swift on. I mean, and I had it up loud. I loved every song. I found myself sometimes on a Stairmaster in tears, listening to Taylor Swift singing. I mean, and literally, it was like a Beatle record to me. It was that emotional, and I heard exactly what she was saying, plus the songs, they were written so perfectly for her age, and they had the mystery built into it, which no one can know the mystery of a 15-year-old when you're 15 years old. Yeah, She already knew what it was, and her melodies were, you automatically, the melodies are all killer melodies. They're all like Paul McCartney melodies. They're very fluid, very lyrical. Uh, the melodies are and very identifiable. And I mean, to me, it's, I'm probably going to get hit, but I'd say there's been, there was Hank Williams and then there was Taylor Swift. Everybody else copied everybody else. That's it. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, think, think about it. People still doing Hank. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, especially now, nobody else counted. Yeah. I mean, you go haggard. Okay. Big deal. You know, Jones, big deal. It's like they all doing, they're all doing Hank Williams. Mm. I mean, was Taylor supposed to be like Brenda Lee? No. Mm-mm. She came up with her own thing that opened up, it opened up a whole nother kind of music and nobody knew, you know, the world knew nothing of Nashville. And now everybody knows about Nashville. She opened up so many roads to the the young girls that are doing it now and, and just country music in, in general. And uh, the rap she gets is, is wrong. And it's by people that are just jealous. You know, they can't pull off what she did and she's already done it. Now, I think she's fantastic. You know, I think she's yeah. the most other than Dolly Parton. She's the most talented female. Loretta Lynn is my love of all time. To me, she invented that shit. But, <laughs> you know, I, I love Dolly, but Taylor Swift was the Loretta Lynn and the Dolly of the 90s or whatever, or 2000s, whatever it was when she got started. No yeah. doubt. Well, hey, man, let me ask you, uh, my last question is, is there any chance that you would come back on this podcast in the future and keep talking about music with oh. us? I'd love it. Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't think so, man. I'm pretty busy, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when, you, man. When we were working this out, you know, I've been wanting to do something like this because the stories I have, I mean, I got 20 hours of stories just about junk. And then also the, my story, and I've never stopped to really put it down so that I can enjoy it and, and just be able to talk about all this stuff because it's, it's all like it happened yesterday. It's like 
it's like it was yesterday. Nara was saying that's a smash. I mean, it was just yesterday. So wow. it's fabulous. And, um, uh, you know, to be able to, to talk it and, um, you know, I think I've lived it. I've talked it. I am it. I continue to create with it. I'm not bitter. I'm not hot right now, but I'm not bitter. I'm more creative now than I've ever been. And I, I like to learn every day and I always work at my craft and I, my idea is to get better at what I do. We're thrilled that you came on the podcast and we would love to have you back. And, you know, maybe uh, we can come to Nashville. Maybe we can spend a little time he, in your he cabin. He's in Nashville, man. He's a, yeah. not in Nashville right In now. the woods. Wherever. We'll hang out. We'll come out in the woods. No, yeah. man. I, You're not I the Unabomber, are you? I live in Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking about it. If I can't get, if I can't get somebody to... If I can't get somebody to custom my songs, I might resort to that. <laughs> yeah, man. It's great, man. Love it. I think, hey, I, I, too much. I think we got detailed to about 24. So next time we come on, we're going to get like 24 uh, <laughs> and, and get a little bit. Because yeah. really, I mean, we, <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't mean that as a we'll joke. We'll try to go 24 to 30 next no, time. I, man, there's a lot of yeah. the, saying oh, you know yeah. you had th 300 <laughs> cuts in 11 years is one thing so, but like breaking down the stuff that you've written to put it in perspective thing. Yeah. so we talked about yeah take the time to know her which went to number right. four but we're talking to right. a guy that had 18 number ones and we, we, we barely touched them we haven't even I, talked I, I about even, one yeah. we haven't even named so one we've got so a lot, we've got, we've got a lot got to talk so about so much more to talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's, there's there's great stories about the artists and them recording them when you're there and stuff like that i mean it's just just inside stuff that i, I know songwriters would enjoy it's just fun oh, to talk yes. about it because i was there hell yeah <laughs> i was there the next time we talk i'm going to tell you how george jones how he sang the first line of he stopped loving her today i'm going to tell you how that happened oh uh, we might need to hear that right now <laughs> No, I ain't gonna do it. Okay, this is what we're leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm. This is on paper, George Jones. Okay, so Stephen, we've got, we've got our first episode of season three lined up, but I'm gonna send you okay. some info to record like late September for release in October. Okay, and we're gonna kick off with okay. George Jones. George Jones, the George He's Jones story. Loving her today. <laughs> yeah, Place three. That's that's a good one to start off with. It's it's a really good story. I know the whole story, and it's quite hilarious. Quite hilarious. I mean, I know it from when George hadn't even heard the song yet. Oh, all right. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Can't wait. That's gonna be a long wait. How can you tease us with that? Because <laughs> yeah, I know y'all are good boys. Yes, we'll be back, man. We're gonna do this. It's gonna be amazing. All right, Steve, yeah, thank free. you for being on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thanks for reaching out to me. Uh, it means a lot, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, I, I didn't know I knew so much shit. I'm just born away. <laughs> I mean, you know. And listeners, we'll see you next week.